Hello and welcome back to Perspectives. Today's guest is Georgia Peck. Georgia is the founder and owner of both Aubrey Peck and Aubrey. Aubrey Peck provides a range of services in the luxury automotive sector, such as event planning, automotive adventures, driving tours, marketing, PR, product launches, and much more. Chances are, if you require anything at all in the luxury automotive sector, Aubrey Peck is your port of call. Alongside this, Georgia owns a bespoke vehicle commissioning service, which meticulously restores and upgrades classic vehicles to the buyer's request to provide a completely bespoke, one-off vehicle to suit the customer's every need. Whether it be a go-anywhere Land Rover designed for the Swiss Alps or an SUV to cater for everyday life in the city, every detail is designed with the customer in mind. In this episode, we discuss what it takes to plan and run a luxury driving tour, why her grandfather was such an inspiration to Georgia, her vision for both Aubrey and Aubrey Peck, what makes Aubrey unique amongst a field of custom and aftermarket vehicle builders, what skills Georgia has found beneficial when working with ultra-high and high-net-worth individuals, why everyone should read about heroic women in motorsports such as the enigmatic Dorothy Levitt, and much more. So, without further ado, Georgia Peck. Georgia Peck, thank you very much for, for coming on the show. Hello. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Louise. So it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so with all my guests, I'd like to start with a little bit of an introduction. So obviously some people may not be familiar with who you are and what you do. So I don't know if you can just give us a little bit of sort of history of Georgia Peck and sort of what you do in the industry you're in at the moment. Yeah, so I mean, essentially I grew up in the countryside. I had a father who loved cars. And that was passed down by my grandfather. So growing up, I was very much the tomboy of the family. All of my life was spent in the workshop with my dad, tinkering with old cars and sort of bombing around in them, which was my idea of of heaven. Um, And I dabbled in a number of different industries over the years, from property and fashion and luxury lifestyle. And then I came back to what I truly love, which is, which is old cars. <laughs> and now we've got two companies. So one of them is Aubrey Peck. And we do everything. It's all automotive. We do everything from branding to marketing, PR, predominantly automotive events, which are really good fun. So that's everything from rallies, product launches, private experiences. And we sort of do everything in between, really. Whether you need a website built or a logo designed, it's kind of, if we can't do it, we'll find someone that can do it for you, which is quite nice. And the other company, which I set up just over a year ago, is called Aubrey. And both companies named after my grandfather, who was Harry Aubrey Peck. And Aubrey, we build bespoke four by fours. So... We only do it on commission and clients will come to us and say, I'd love, I don't know, an old Land Rover for the mountains in Switzerland. And then we will build them their dream vehicle, which is something I love more than any other aspect of the business, to be honest, because it's where 
I think I can be most creative. So <laughs> yeah, I'm really, really loving that side of it at the moment. It's always like a, a blank canvas, isn't it? With with the bespoke element. I've seen you've done, uh, Merlin was talking in one of the previous episodes about the work you did on the wine bar, Plonkers. Like, I've seen the pictures. It looks unbelievable what you've done with the interior and stuff. Like, like the first class 70s lounge-esque, I think you said the design brief was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the design brief was kind of like come up with a random concept and make it work. As I'm sure you realize, Merlin's style is very eclectic, very retro. I love that thing too. And I had COVID one week and so I was locked in the house. And from start to finish, we designed the entire bath <laughs> um, in one week. And the most amazing team put it all together. But we've got, you know, leather front carpet and 1960s bars and all the glassware and velvet. It's, yeah, very, very, it's sort of like a classy string fellows in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, I saw like, it was also like Playboy-esque. You can kind yeah. of imagine Hugh Hefter sat there supping a supping a glass of plonk, so to speak, on the on a on a Saturday evening. Uh, and then just going back to your your you say your grandfather Harry Peck. I uh, I, was, I particularly enjoyed reading about his sort of 007 esque gadgets that he seemed to have in his cars and his unique ways of of clearing traffic. Can you tell us a bit bit more about him and and those sort of gadgets and how he inspired you. Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, I never got to meet him, sadly. And that's one of the things I'm most sad about in my life. But the best thing about all of it was I had my dad to tell me every night before bed, instead of the typical girls' stories of my little pony and princesses, <laughs> I had stories of my granddad, which I he was my hero. And my dad obviously adored him too. And so that made me adore him in turn. And... Yes, it was mostly, I think, his very wicked sense of humour, which came through in all of the stories. And again, his love for cars. So he had all sorts of old cars, obviously pre-war, because that was his era. And my great-grandfather too. And he just, I think, for a good laugh, liked to tinker with all of them. So in one of his old friendlies, he had a little lever with a pair of ladies' underwear, which used to pop out at the back of the window, which back in the day was incredibly scandalous, but I'm sure would be quite fun. Um, not so much these days. And he had another car, gosh, I think it was the MG, which he called Black Bess. And that was his favourite one that he bombed around. It was an MG TC, I think it was the name of it. And that one, he'd put a little contraption in that puffed out black smoke to anyone <laughs> that peeved him on roads, essentially. <laughs> so, I'm not sure how he didn't get in trouble for that one. But yeah, I mean, he had some some fun cars. And I think, you know, I also like to play around with my cars. Not so much like that, because I'm sure I'd get arrested. But um, there is a job of making each car your own. And I think specifically with Aubrey that's something I've really understood is the type of customer we have they don't need this car that we're building for them they already have plenty of cars they could use for you know every day of the week and every occasion this is essentially an accessory and an elevation of their lifestyle and so what I really think about when building their cars is about them and if they do have a sense of humor and if we can incorporate that into the car like you know my grandfather or if they love interior design and then we'll really incorporate you know beautiful materials like Laura Piana fabrics for example 
you know, or if they love adventure. And then of course we, we, we pop all those things in there. And I think it's that custom element and understanding people it's, that's really important. And I think I've understood that from my family is that cars are part of your character and you can build on that, which is really lovely. Yeah. Are you familiar with the work of like Outlander? I think he's based in Scotland. He does similar sort of thing. Yes. So I, obviously, I'm a diehard Land Rover girl. I love them. And before I started building my own, um, I did very much like Outlander was on my radar. And I think Cool and Vintage do a really beautiful job. It's obviously something Outlander are totally different to what we do. It's very much, I believe, quite a masculine end product. You know, it's tweed, it's big sort of hard decking and stuff. And I think for their customer, which from what I understand, it goes out to America and in some, you know, in the Highlands, I think they do a really, really excellent job. And I think ours are more, I don't know, I think we just have a very different customer, to be honest. And I love what Outlander do. But yeah, just a different a different look and I understand obviously Outlander is, is run by a man and has an all-male team whereas our company is well, I try to hire as many women as possible so it's a different a different take on the design but I think that's what makes it so special because of course there are hundreds of people that do what we do that take Land Rovers and and transform them and each one it's just a matter of taste that's the only difference because you know some people have no taste <laughs> when you see some of the end products that come out of some of these customization companies. I mean, it's not my personal style, a lot of them. But again, they're built for a certain demographic of customer. And we are selling them. But obviously, very different to the type of people we, we build cars for. And um, I'm quite happy about <laughs> Yeah. I would, I would be too. I think, you, I think you're... Uh... I think I'd share that relief, to be honest. So the the first uh, commission vehicle, Aubrey 001, uh, and then you've got the G-Wagon, I believe, is, is coming out next. Is that correct? Exactly. So we launched 001, which was the orange Land Rover. Everyone's probably seen far too much of now. It's been all over the shop. We launched that at the ice in summer. It's this February, or this February gone. And I had no idea how people of summer it's especially at such a prestigious concours attended by some of the finest cars in the world we're going to take to a bright orange Land Rover so <laughs> I was incredibly nervous because as you can imagine it was a very expensive uh, expedition to show you the car out there and I was very lucky to be there with Purcell so we kitted it all out to look like an adventure adventure car which it is um, in the snow and the reaction was really brilliant so better than I could have expected and the G-Wagon is is almost done it's on the final stages now so hopefully in the next few weeks we'll be launching that too so you should see it online and um, potentially at a few events this year and next which will be good look forward to seeing that uh, why orange is it is this is the other one going to be orange as well or is there a particular reason why you chose orange <laughs> I think orange is an incredibly happy colour. Um, also, the, the build, it was a 1973 Land Rover. And we chose, it wasn't an original Land Rover, but it, a Land Rover colour. 
but it is a period correct orange. It's very much a 70s color. And I think it's very hard not to see that car and smile. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and because we were building it for Switzerland, for a really wonderful family who, who lived in Rila in the Alps, they wanted to use it all year round. And they'd had it on a farm down in Devon before they moved out to Switzerland. It used to be cream, which was the original color. And it was absolutely rotten when we got it. I mean, very, very few parts of the Land Rover, I would say, are original. Um, we had to sort of replace most things or do extensive repairs. And so we thought, you know, to give this, we're giving this car a whole new lease of life anyway. We might as well, you know, adorn it with a really joyous color that stands out. And in the snow, it looks fantastic. And in the summer, it looks fantastic. And yeah, I think it's just a happy color, to be honest. And I think Land Rovers are happy cars and they should they should look that way. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's like Trigger's broom then. You've, you've, you've only had like four handles and 10 heads on it and the full nut and bolt restoration. Yeah. Uh, so the... I, I mean, it does. It looks absolutely glorious. I've seen. I've only seen pictures of it. I've not had the chance to see it in the flesh, but uh, it does look outstanding from the from the photos that I've seen of it. And just going back to the whole idea of doing something that's unique to, you know, bespoke and personalised to how you want it. We have a got a friend of our family's who's a bit like that, and I always like to refer to him as a bit of a mad professor when it comes to vehicles because he's got. Everything from Chevrolet El Caminos to uh, Di Tommaso Panteras, but he does these sort of ridiculous. He'll even in the Pantera, which is a you know a big big block Ford V8 with Italian styling uh, supercar. He he took the engine out and completely rebuilt and put this custom big block Chevrolet engine, and he used to drag race this thing. And I think this, he said. He said to me. He said it did. He said he did a hundred miles an hour in second gear or something like that. It was ridiculous. It was like seven hundred and fifty horsepower at the wheel. And then he had this Vauxhall Cresta estate. So it was like nineteen sixties, I believe. And this thing looked like a hearse. And again, he did the same thing. Just put like a a big sort of five hundred brake horsepower uh, Chevrolet engine in it. And he's completely redone the interior. He's done some fairly garish things with garish to my opinion but uh with the coloring he's done sort of purple wheels on it and he had a he had a lamborghini Murcielago before and he painted the uh, the rocker covers in the in the back bright purple so he's of the same sort of thing where he's just personalized it and he he likes experimenting with color and just sort of bringing the you know bringing the you talked about joy there and, and the happy color it brings sort of that happiness to to the, his sort of toys so yeah it's definitely Color plays a massive, massive part in cars. I think you can, it really can make or break a car, mm. in my opinion. I don't know if you share the same same thought. Oh no, absolutely. And I hope you've driven this Jag Racer. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually. No, it was always in always in bits. Um, but uh, yeah, he'd, he'd have it running for a bit, and then I'd go around, and it was all in bits again. And he was tinkering around with something else. And uh, but yeah, I've, I've seen videos of it, and it was pretty extraordinary. I'll have to see if I can. There's probably some on YouTube somewhere. I'll have to try and dig out and, and find. But yeah, interesting. So you set up uh, Aubrey and Aubrey Peck. 
And then I read about some of your challenges and experiences with sort of dealing with suppliers, obviously being a female in the in a, a quite a male-dominated industry at this time. Do you, do you feel like there's a an, a change in attitudes or it's shifting, the attitude's shifting a bit more towards women entering the industry now? Do you think it's, a, it's getting better or do you think there's still a lot of work to be done on that sense? I mean, I don't think it's too bad to be perfectly honest. I think there's areas where maybe because I'm new to the industry or it was potentially because I'm a woman, I'll never know. There, there had been some issues which were very easily smoothed over. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, there are some truly, truly incredible women in the industry. You know, you've got people like Georgina Wood that, you know, she runs P&A Wood and her cousin Louisa too. And that's one of the most brilliant dealerships in the country. You've got, oh, you've got Amy Shaw, who's one of the greatest female photographers. Um, there are so many amazing women in the industry that are just keeping their heads down and doing the most incredible job. And they don't need to shout about it. And more, you're finding out about them more and more and more and hearing more and more. And it's people like you, to be perfectly honest, that are really helping that. And really giving these incredible women credit and and helping drive it to be more equal, which I think is really, it's really wonderful. So yeah, I said people like you are really helping. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, that's a pleasure to play my part. It's not the intention. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the intention really was to just follow the curiosities. And I never like to distinguish between the two. I think if someone's doing something good with business or in an industry, and they're going to be an interesting person to talk to, you know, I don't, I don't really see that sort of Oh, are they a male or a female or man or woman, whatever? It's um, but it is, yeah. It's it's good to see, and I, you know, it was nice to see the concourse this year and last year. I know you've been quite heavily involved with the the Levitt Trophy, so I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about that in particular and who Dorothy Levitt was, because she sounds like she's quite an inspirational sort of character as well. Yeah, so it was Luke at Influence Associates that does all of the PR for. Hamilton Court Concours, he gave me a call one day and said, look, we're thinking of doing a ladies' concours at, at Hamilton Court. We think you'd be great. Would you like to be involved with this? And it all started from there, really. And the first thing we had to think of was a name. And I was thinking and thinking of a, a suitable name that would appeal to all ages, of course, because I'm sure you know it's a slightly older older demographic when it comes to the Concorde and I thought of Dorothy Levitt it's a British Concorde I thought of Helene Neese first but of course she's she's French she's an incredible woman if you don't know her story you must must read about her she was known as the Bugatti Queen and then I came across um Dorothy Levitt in more detail I'd heard of her before and she was an Edwardian motorist and at the time she was one of the very very first female racing drivers and she actually held the land speed record for women and she was only titchy and had a little dog and she used to travel around in her Dion Pouton um with a with a silver pistol under her seat in case anyone you know liked to ambush her and I just thought she was so brilliant you know this is you know well over a hundred almost 120 years ago, where roads were non-existent. I don't know how much experience you have in pre-war cars, but they're quite bumpy and rugged at the best of times on the roads we're used to. 
and she'd go from here to Liverpool and back, you know, with in these incredible cars. And she was actually supposedly the inventor of the rear view mirror. Oh, well. Wow. By accident, because they didn't have them at that time. And so she had a silver pocket compact mirror. And when she wanted to check her um, opponents in races behind her, she would lift it up. And she would see who's catching up with her. That's amazing. <laughs> How much she's in that, I don't know. She invented or helped invent the rear view mirror. I think it's quite cool. And so, yeah, she was just an incredible female pioneer in the industry. And as I'm sure you know, there aren't thousands of women in the world with concourse standard cars. There's quite a few men that own large collections. And then, of course, they bring cars back every year. And that's how it works. But with women, we were a little bit more limited on numbers. And so to help us include more women, which is what it was really about, in, in addition to fantastic cars, was to actually, you know, bring the women into it in terms of the judging and the women and their cars that held the spirit of Dorothy Levitt. And so for the past two years, we've had the most fantastic winners who, you know, them as individuals and their cars deserve awards. And it's been really, really wonderful to meet them and hear their stories. For example, this year we had a lady called Julia de Bordanza. She won in her uh, 1955 Fraser Nash Le Coupe, which was gorgeous and very rare car, of course. Mm, but Beautiful car. Beautiful car. Yeah, exactly. Stunning. And to her as an individual, I'd been speaking to her all week on the phone. And a couple of days beforehand, she said, Georgia, um, you know, is there an airport nearby? And I said, well, of course, Heathrow. She goes, no, no, to fly my plane. <laughs> and she was planning on flying her vintage aircraft in and then driving her car. And the weekend before, she'd been racing her. She had a single-seater Maserati. She'd been racing. So she's the most incredible woman, you know, racing driver, pilot, and collects these fantastic pieces of history. So it really does come into play, I think, which is quite wonderful, again, to profile these amazing women that haven't necessarily been spoken about as much for some of the men in the industry. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, I had a chat with Julia uh, just after the event, actually. We were just walking around as it was getting a bit bit later in the day and uh, fantastic looking machine, that Fraser Nash, absolutely beautiful. Uh, the, the green as well, yeah. just absolutely popped in the in the sun. And uh, yeah, she was very, you know, very, uh, I, I think I saw a picture of her leaning in, sort of squirting WD-40 into the engine bay doing some various sort of elements of tinkering before the event. And yeah, just there seems to be quite a close connection really between not just cars, but aviation as well. And the same with, uh, I had the conversation with a few different people uh, on the watch side of things. So why why sort of motorsport went quite hand in hand with watches and, and it seems to be expanding to aviation as well. I know your your grandfather was a flew bow fighters, the Bristol bow fighters as well as, as being a, a bit of a speed human. So that sort of aviation connection between aircraft and mechanical objects in, in general seems to be that holy holy trinity seems to be sort of cars, watches and planes at the moment. So moving on to looking at, we had the, had the same question with Merlin actually, and, and he was talking about when he grew up that he was sort of 
drive around these old clapped out cars and everyone was kind of looking at him a bit funny and there seemed to be a bit of a, a shift. I definitely noticed it when I got to a certain age where I started appreciating cars a lot more and, and classics. And you mentioned you're quite into the pre-war stuff. Is it something you've always had a, a fascination in or do you think it's something that as you kind of got a little bit older, you've, you've developed that appreciation for those sort of things? I think that, again, it comes back to me as a child. So I used to watch the Pathé films, my grandfather racing at, at Brooklands, and he was always in pre-war cars, of course, with his big moustache and his goggles, and I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Obviously not the moustache. <laughs> I'm trying to keep that one under wraps. Um, yeah. But no, <laughs> he'd be blasting around Brooklands or got all this old footage of him outside the house or bombing along the road in Egypt or something in these old cars with his goggles on and his big moustache. And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, and I've always liked a bit of danger. And I love that kind of feeling of being free. I grew up with horses and things like that. And I always, I'd never really experienced pre-war cars too much, except as a child. My father didn't have any himself. Apart from when I was a baby, and then my mother made him sell them because they were only two seats, which is quite sad. Um, and so, very, very luckily, I mean, I feel very privileged to say this. William Metcalf invited me down to Goodwood a couple of years ago to learn how to drive a four and a half liter Bentley around the track, which was, I couldn't believe he even advised me to be honest. It was quite amazing, and that was, of course, one of the cars that my grandfather owned before the war. And so for me, that was utterly magical. And it just sparked what I always knew that I want one of these. And one day I will buy one of these. <laughs> and this is just the best one ever. And so off the back of it, I'm not quite in Bentley budget yet. I'm sure one day, I, I hope to be. Um, I went and bought a 1929 Ford. It's a Model A boat tail speedster, which absolutely no one knows what it is i've taken it to multiple car events i drive it every single day come rain or shine everyone in richmond thinks i'm bonkers <laughs> one person knows what it is which i absolutely love and i think quite a few people in the pub think it's a bit more special than it actually is and they'll say oh, who knew is that a bugatti <laughs> and i would say absolutely not um but no it's just I have driven lots of classic cars. I've been very, very lucky, of course, with my with my family or with Merlin or with my job. I used to review cars and driving a pre-war car was the most fun I've ever had behind the wheel, ever, times by 10. <laughs> and I just loved it. I loved how rugged it is. I love the sound. For me, I think 60 to 70% of my enjoyment from a car comes from the noise. And the Ford is definitely loud, which I love. And I love getting, you know, all dressed up in my aviator jacket with my dog in the in the passenger seat and just tearing around looking like a lunatic, really. I just think it's really good fun. And it makes every day that I drive, even somewhere boring, like to the supermarket or to the woods to walk the dog, great fun. And so, yes, pre-war cars for me, I would say are my newfound passion. And I'm hoping to do a lot more with them uh, and hopefully get that Bentley one day. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. I think my, I had a friend at school, his granddad had a four and a half litre Bentley. And I didn't really, I don't, I knew it was a Bentley. 
but again it's kind of i got to that sort of a few years later and i was like actually that was such a cool car like why didn't i try and sort of spend more time trying to go around and you know learning about it and things like that yeah i mean pre-roll cars are interesting I've, I've never really i must say i've not been around too many or any uh, sort of classic car events and and you don't see as many around so what is it that makes it so so different i can imagine it's it's quite a bit more involved than your your classic cars which are obviously modern cars when you look at them in in respect to the sort of 29 and, and pre-war stuff right i think it really depends obviously on the on the on the car you have because most pre-war cars do have a roof mine does not so that's sort of the first hurdle to, <laughs> to jump across and mine also doesn't which is probably quite naughty doesn't have mud guards and so Obviously, if you go out in the rain or with a wet road in mine, you will get wet. So if you're planning on going to a meeting, you sort of need a full rain mac and a face mask <laughs> to turn up looking half decent. Um, but of course, in terms of the more practical side of things, driving is different. So the gears and the gearbox, and it's quite good fun to learn how to do pedals, of course. So that's that's the first thing to know. Each of them have their own sort of secret starting combination which is fun to learn and i think the maintenance is so much simpler and cheaper obviously in my very basic experience with an old ford i'm sure if this does not help from most of the others out there it, you can fix most things in mine with a spanner and you have to sort of check it every 200 miles whereas you know other cars we've got in the garage you have to check them every few thousand miles whereas the Ford sort of after every drive you want to just check everything's still tight but it's all stuff you can do yourself which is really nice so you really get to know your car a lot more than you would with something modern and yeah of course you know they're all ULES and all ULES exempt which is great so you can drive it around. yeah you don't mind that <laughs> no 12 no 12 pound 50 charge for you yeah is it or is it more in London always 12 for you it might be more. funny enough all of my cars are ULES so I don't have to pay that which is good <laughs> you can park them just about anywhere and people don't seem to mind or give you a ticket which is quite good um and i think the other brilliant thing about having a pre-war car is you get to meet so many people like really wonderful people and it has such the ford has such a different reaction to driving something different like, for example if i drive around or have driven around in merlin's testerosa you get the old look Mostly, you know, sort of middle-aged men, perfectly frank. But weirdly, driving around in the Ford, and I can't believe this because in all the cars I've ever driven, I've never had any female attention. It's girls that seem to dig it the most and think it's the coolest thing. And the first time I drove it around Richmond, I had a group of teenage girls cheering at the side of the road, which I thought was totally bizarre. But then again, I thought... I thought back and I thought, I've personally never seen a girl driving around in something that old or silly before. And I don't know, I'm not sure how people take it, but you get to meet and have a lot of really wonderful conversations with people. And I've ended up off the back of it speaking to far more women than I would have ever spoken to driving something else and making friends. And yes, there's people like my dad that are interested and want to come over and people want to put their children in it and take a picture. And you just end up meeting lots of really charming people and having great conversations and i don't know it just brings people together in a way that a modern car doesn't and it makes people smile which is really nice 
hundred percent. And that's I think that's one of the big appeals of classic cars. So you, you're definitely channeling the uh, the spirit of Dorothy Levitt with your your open top there. It sounds like you need to instead of having a, a pocket mirror, you need a, just a brolly to drive along with in the rain. And uh, and for people who are going wrong with their dating, you just need to buy a pre-war car. Basically, that's the solution. That's where you've been going wrong this whole time. <laughs> but yeah, I do. In all seriousness, I do love the the community that classic cars and and you know spanning from modern classics to pre-war sort of stuff as well there's always commonality you always find someone random will come up to you um, we've got a an austin healy sprite a 67 austin healy sprite and anytime you park that anywhere it always turns heads it's lovely to drive i say lovely to drive it steering's heavy it's like a boat sort of turn around corners and I always like to say it's got a noise pedal, so it doesn't get any faster when you put the uh, put your foot down. It just gets louder. Okay. But um, but that's part of the charm of it. And you're so low to the ground that doing you know 50 miles an hour feels like you're doing 100 miles an hour in those things because they're just so low to the ground, and you feel every bump, rattle, and yeah. you know, and uh, and pothole in which in the UK are, are pretty prevalent if you live anywhere near the countryside or anywhere within a 50 mile radius of the M25. But uh, you have people coming up to you that say, you know, I used to have one of these uh, when I was, uh, you know, learning to drive or when I was in my 20s, um, you know, men, women, granddads, uh, grandmas, like all that sort of stuff. It's, it's just a nice, nice thing. And it's, it, as you say, it brings people together. It's sort of that mutual appreciation for something that you don't, you don't see anymore. Yeah. I think they're just, there's a certain, there's a certain beauty about even sort of the, the old sort of bangers as well they're, they're they're charming in their own different way whereas i think modern cars they just yeah you can get nice modern cars but they all look quite samey and i just i just don't enjoy modern cars as much as i enjoy classics personally no i think it's the character that each old car has and i give all of my cars names which is a bit silly but they all <laughs> they all have characters and personalities and i think that's what makes each of them so special. Yeah, definitely. So just move going back to your your experience, obviously your what you're doing at the moment with working in the the automotive sector with you know, ultra high net worth individuals, high net worth individuals. What what do you feel are some of the key skills that you possess that have been sort of invaluable to you as you've worked in this industry? I think moving into cars or the automotive world from the luxury lifestyle sector has really, really helped. Because prior to that, I worked in a really corporate environment. And obviously, the way things are done in a corporate environment are very different to some of the dealerships <laughs> or the other companies that I've come across in the car world. And so, obviously, working in the luxury lifestyle sector before, you've learned that there's not just one element of it. You know, if you drive a nice car, you also stay in beautiful hotels or appreciate beautiful watches or appreciate beautiful design. It's a whole lifestyle that comes with any one item. And I think an understanding of someone's lifestyle rather than just one of their interests is really important because you then have that common knowledge and that rapport with someone. You can discuss all of those things and help bring them all together. But I think, yeah, really it's that experience that I've had in different sectors that's helped me in the automotive world have a slightly different take on things 
So you said you do like driving experiences as well, and obviously the event side, but you're looking to do more on the driving experiences and driving tours side of things as part of part of the Aubrey brand. How do you how would you go about starting with these? You know, planning the routes and and things like that. How how would you get started with planning an event of that scale? So it really depends on the client, to be perfectly honest, and who they have coming. So each one of our drives or experiences, we do it totally bespoke to the event. It's not like other rally companies where they have a set rally, like the one in Scotland, the North Coast 500, and they all go and stay in the same hotel every time. It's We do something bespoke for each client, which sets us apart a little bit. The first things first is I'll find out who they are and who's coming, what cars are coming. Because obviously if you have 15 pre-war cars or if you have 20 supercars, the roads and the places you're going to be driving are going to be vastly different. (laughs) And also the people coming are going to be vastly different. And so they're going to want to stay in a different type of accommodation or a different type of food. And you, I really have to find out who's going to be there first. And then once I have a deep understanding of, of who those people are, what cars they're bringing, and sometimes the client might say, you know, surprise me, you know, wherever you want to go, it's got to be roughly four or five days and five hours of driving a day. I'll then try and think of a great adventure because really I think there's something joyous about bringing out your inner child and going on a great adventure in your car and not doing something you've done before and being surprised. A lot of high net worth and ultra high net worth people, of course, when you have that much money, you can do anything and Life can sometimes become a little bit boring. Yeah. Not always. There are lots of people that have the best fun ever, of course. But sometimes, you know, the same five-star hotels all the time can become very repetitive and they all seem the same. And, you know, there's the same sort of people and you have the same sort of Michelin dinners and the same tasting menus. And that's all very nice. And I'm sure that's wonderful as a one-off. But you don't want to be doing that on your big adventure with your car on, you know, some some great trip you're doing across wherever and so we try to make it different so obviously the standard of what we do we keep it as high as possible so if we're going to be stopping for a coffee stop instead of stopping by the side of the road in any old cafe we'll stop with a farmer that makes the cheese for the Michelin star restaurant you know to try that cheese that is being produced for one of the top restaurants in the world and everything we do we just try to make it a bit more personable and a bit more unique and I start off by, again, yes, thinking of a location and where we want to go. And then I'll spend days looking at a map, a paper map and studying roads and mapping out drive time. And I'll be on Google Maps and researching the best roads and, and then going on satellite view and driving them myself. And then for each day or night, I'll plan perhaps, I don't know, five hotels or five restaurants. And then I'll go out on a recce. I sometimes take the dog with me, which is quite nice. He has some company. And I'll drive 10 to 12 hours a day, driving each of the potential roads and visiting each of the potential coffee stops and lunch stops and dinner stops and overnight stops until I find the best one. And then, of course, it's a game of matching up who has availability and who has the bedrooms free and then if that works out with the drive time. And so all in all, you, you end up doing two reccees before a drive like this and a lot of backwards and forwards and trying to work out. And obviously parking is really key. And there are, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of elements that go into a rally like that. But ultimately, the most important thing uh, is who's coming and what cars are coming so that we can suit it 
to their needs. Absolutely. It does sound extremely like the the level of planning that needs to go into that sort of thing. And it, even when you think about high net worth individuals, you know, little things like security, perhaps I you would have thought that you wouldn't need to think about on a normal drive, but other than your vehicle, do, does that come into it? Like, does that come into play? Do you find you have to bring along entourages as well, or is it not not to that level? Um, we've had to with some of our private experiences with some of our private clients on the rallies. Typically, no, uh, we haven't had to do that. I think the types of people that need security don't tend to go on a group trip. True. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. Where we tend to stay and tend to go, we will always make sure that the cars are completely secure. And of course, when you're driving somewhere like Switzerland, you know it's one of the safest countries in the world and you could leave your car unlocked anywhere and it would be fine, most likely. Um, but obviously when you go into other countries such as Italy, there's, you have to have higher security and so we'll choose gated and um, very secure parking. And that's a real high priority for us. The safety, the safety, of course, of the cars and of the guests. So, so as with any sort of event or project, I'm sure there are always challenges and uncertainties that sort of come into the foray where people, you know, you may get a spanner thrown in the works to, if you pardon a very bad pun, considering we're talking about mechanical objects here, but uh, how, how do you approach dealing with those unknowns and those areas or events that may happen that really throw off your plans and how do you deal with those without becoming overwhelmed by it all or stressed considering you've got all these people, you know, counting on you to, to deliver a, an, ex, an experience? So I think with an event, you only ever get one shot at it. Like, that's the end. <laughs> you have one shot. And so you have to over-organize everything for every possible scenario. And so it actually helps to be slightly anxious as an individual because you then think about all these bad scenarios that could happen ahead of time and then you push in procedures that make sure that they either don't happen or you can fix them if they do and so on all of our rallies we have a, a trained mechanic that's very specific to the car if they're pre-war or post-war car mechanic that attends with a full van with every single piece of kit and we'll get a full list of cars before they attend so we know what spark plugs to buy and what oil we need and you know all the things so that if anything basic happens these cars we can fix them and also if anything more major happens we can hopefully fix them without having specialist parts flown in from Italy or you know Germany or wherever they were made and so mechanics are really key also on some of our rallies we don't like to have it but we will have a trailer sometimes just in case and also a backup vehicle so We'll sometimes have another very beautiful classic car available, such as an E-Type or a DB5 that's there following the guests around. So let's just say someone in their beautiful Ferrari breaks down in the front. Within 20 minutes, we'll have a DB5 for him to jump in and drive to the lunch location while the mechanic fixes his car and then trailers it to lunch and then off he goes again. So we'll always try to have a solution to everything that's there and waiting. And nine times out of 10, we never have to use it. But it's just that security of knowing that if something happens, we can we can remedy it most immediately. Yeah, rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Exactly. <laughs> so, so looking ahead then with, with Aubrey and the future goals, what, what are, what does the next sort of five, 10 years look like for Aubrey? What are the, what are the main goals and objectives for, for the company? Well, I think for Aubrey, we're really hoping to 
do a lot more four by fours and already there are some I can't talk about just yet but some very very exciting ones that are not like anything we've done before and they're hopefully in the pipeline for next year so moving out of just Land Rovers and and sort of your typical four by fours and going into some of the more rally spec vehicles and sports cars too so yeah I mean hoping to expand and just build lots more beautiful cars that people can enjoy really excellent and then for the for the events business as well so the events business we're doing a few rallies next year there's a really really great restorers in the uk with some really really special classic cars so we have a few of those planned we also have a couple of international rallies planned which is going to be great fun and we'll be launching those soon but there are so many other things that we do aside from events which is probably why it looks quite quiet on our social media a lot of the time we're working at the moment with a really fantastic young racing driver called Manuel Maldonado uh, who's actually racing right now in Portugal for the European Le Mans series their finale and we're helping him launch a luxury streetwear brand which is all racing inspired. So we do lots of other projects which aren't necessarily events related. And so, yeah, we're just trying to grow all aspects of the business, really. Post more events. We're doing some shooting events this year and next year with off-roading involved. So the idea is you bring your classic 4 by 4 you bob around the beautiful estate, shoot some plays and, and have a big lunch and have a great day. So there are lots of other things that we're putting into play and planning for next year which we're excited about amazing and i saw it on your instagram you got a motorcycle apparel is that is that still in the works ladies uh centered motorcycle gear is that still is that still in the pipeline yes it's called andre sejamp which means between her legs in french is um, <laughs> <laughs> ladies motorcycle apparel because i love i love riding a bike and all of the biker stuff out there at the moment, you either end up looking like a man or looking like a Power Ranger. And there's nothing <laughs> very important, I think, for women. And so, yeah, we're trying to design beautiful items, much like Kira Knightley wore in that Chanel advert that everyone remembers so well with her on the Ducati. Um, and yeah, just sort of beautiful luxury pieces that are practical and look good on a bike. Brilliant. Georgia Peck, thank you very much indeed for your time. I really enjoyed uh, having you on the podcast. So if anyone wants to find out a bit more about Aubrey Peck or Aubrey, uh, do you have a website or anywhere they can go and find out a bit more about what you do? Yeah, so we've got two websites. We have aubreypeck.co.uk and then we also have aubreyautionbills.co.uk and we're on Instagram via the same names too. And you can find out a bit more about what we do. Amazing. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you so much.